This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing with Chris what happens when a RIF beneficiary designation doesn't quite work out as originally planned. This episode will be good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. We will submit this for an IROC compliance credit. It will not be good for an accident and sickness credit in the province of Alberta, and it will be good for financial planning credit for those who carry CFP or QAFP certification. Because we cover a lot of ground, I'm going to go back to how I used to do the interviews. Chris and I will talk for a few minutes, and then I'm going to interject just because there's so much ground that we cover and a lot of technical stuff, so I would prefer to cover the technical stuff when it's relevant. Now, like I said, we do cover an awful lot of ground here. I do want to clarify a little bit of confusion. Uh, We recorded this right on December 30th of 2019, and this is where you can hear Chris is a little bit confused about what year things are happening in, and I get why, because in his head, I think we were in January of 2020 already. Just to be clear, in this particular scenario, at least what we talk about for the first half or so. The client's partner died in 2019, and that's where we really still have into 2020 to finish our tax planning. And I'll go into those details when it's appropriate, but the death in this scenario is in 2019, not 2018. So I think when Chris says last year, he was just thinking if it happened early in 2019, that's so long ago. If you're listening to this while you're not driving, you might find it useful to draw a little timeline. The color for today's episode is blue. The color is blue. Okay, there's quite a bit of content here, so let's hear what Christian has to say. I'm here today with Chris. Chris is a financial planner based in Calgary at a bank firm. And Chris is on the MFDA side, obviously no insurance licensing then being with a bank firm. Is that fair, Chris? Yeah, it is. This is actually our first time having somebody who's purely in a bank branch as an interviewee here. Can you talk a little bit about your role in the banking system, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background on the the bank side. So I was in financial services for 14 years of that five years as a financial planner. When I started as a financial planner, as you know, in Alberta, you can be called a financial planner without having your CFP designation or PFP. So I was a financial planner completing my uh, CFP designation with your help. 
and being successful and then uh, switch institutions in the meantime. So I would say it really depends on the institution. It was quite different back then. Uh, and also because I didn't have my CFP, I didn't feel like I had everything I needed to best serve my clients. I would say we talk a lot about investments for sure. A little place is left to entrance, maybe not enough, but we have to provide you know, general entrance advice. It has to be as basic as possible because we're not in a position to talk about it, right? So there's a little bit of that. Uh, estate planning, we talked uh, today, uh, estate planning 101, I would call, uh, but still extremely important to discuss with each and every client. We do have a little bit of tax planning here and there throughout the investment conversation. And we do full financial plans for clients depending on the needs. As far as the clients you see, do they come to you mostly through the branch system or do you have a referral network? How do you build your client base? So I was uh, lucky enough to enter it from a desk of a planner who was here for 20 years. So there's that. And then I'm building my desk through the IRPs, we call, so the investment retirement planners. Those are the guys going out there and finding the best clients for financial planning needs. We have, a, we have a case here that you described to me a little bit by email, and the, the case deals with somebody who ran into a little bit of an estate planning problem. I'm curious to know, first off, is this a client you inherited from that advisor whose desk you picked up, or did you pick this client up from somewhere else? How they end up on your desk? Uh, this client was already on my desk. Okay. And was this your first interaction with this client, or was this somebody that you knew no, we had probably five, six, maybe even more than that uh, interactions because she was uh, retiring soon. So uh, there was a lot to discuss. Maybe you can just give a little bit of background about this client. I know there's, there's a bunch going on here. There's a, a guardianship question and then leading into a tax and really just straight up property ownership question. Can you just give a little background about this case? Yeah, absolutely. So everything started probably I would say in 2010 in another institution where the uh, RSP of the late husband was um, and I had everything on uh, the spouse's side and she uh, was a legal guardian for him uh, since 2015 and in the meantime the will was written in 2013. There was in 2013 then at the other institution, there was a beneficiary named on the account and it was their only son. When I transferred over everything here over a year ago and just before he passed, we had to transfer with the designation in place because she's, as you know, not allowed to make any changes on that side. So that's what we've done. So it did, just that did complexify a little bit the situation already because, um, you know, talking with group law, on my side and talking with uh, estate department, they, they were a little bit confused with uh, all those changes and, and why the, the name beneficiary was not from 2017, but rather from 2010. The other thing is my client, when her husband passed, went to a lawyer and she only had a couple of joint accounts. So pretty simple and straightforward. No debts. For this account, that was the main asset. She's been told uh, reading the will, in 2013, right? Um, she was told that uh, she could ask for an exception in rolling over with a renunciation from the beneficiary and that it should be allowed. Yeah, it's a tricky scenario here because the bank needs to follow law on that. And this is where everything started, I guess. 
Do you know when she talked to that lawyer and it was the lawyer who brought up the idea of potentially having the beneficiary renounce? Correct. And do you know if she talked to the son then, the name beneficiary at that time about renunciation? Absolutely. And he was on side with it? Oh, yes. Okay. And then the husband died recently, like in the last year? Uh, in 2018. So yeah, that's where you hear Christian say 2018, but the fact is, and we'll hear this later on, that the RIF annuitant in this case died in 2019. So it was in fact in the past year, just prior to us having this discussion. When the husband died then, how difficult was it to actually arrive at the intended outcome? It was very difficult and it didn't happen actually. So I'm meeting with the client today just after our conversation. So what happened is I talked with a lot of different people uh, throughout the process and uh, we've been told that it was it, it might be possible, right? So we had to give it a shot and, and I wanted to go the extra mile and do whatever I could for the client. So uh, we went and had a letter for the beneficiary renouncing from the lawyer uh, with all the explanations to what, what is the reason for that, and both uh, the beneficiary and the executor and spouse signed on that. And then it's, uh, it's been accepted, but what the bank has allowed for is to pay the RSP to the estate. Another problem here is first, the rollover will, would not happen, and this is the whole reason for that. And the second thing is, um, by paying the RSP to the estate, we would have to go through probate because of the size of this asset. Okay, a couple of comments here. First off, I just want to emphasize that this type of error, I see this at financial institutions of all sorts. I know some of you will be thinking, oh, it's the bank's fault, but I have seen this very thing happen at other financial institutions as well. And basically what happened here was we had a successful renunciation or, or the son who was for reasons undetermined named as the beneficiary did renounce the beneficiary designation, which allowed then a joint election to be filed between the surviving spouse and the executor of the estate which then under the Income Tax Act, and this is true, I said later on you'll hear me comment that I'm going to clarify this, but this is absolutely a case. Under the Income Tax Act, as long as we get this designation or this T1090 filed within 60 days following the year of death of the beneficiary. So basically the same as the RRSP year, and I'll include in the show notes a link to a useful article that describes all of the ins and outs here. But yeah, we need the T1090 filed by 60 days after. That really should be the accountant's job anyways. It's a tax filing problem. That's valid. Now, not that big a deal cost-wise to go through probate in Alberta. Sure. I assume the bigger challenge there is administrative. Uh, yeah, the, there's that. And even though the cost is not hi uh it is an extra cost and you know i we were, we were trying to to avoid that uh, to the client because she already consulted with the uh, lawyer a few times and uh knowing uh that we couldn't go through the rollover what we did is ask for a waiver of probate with my manager's approval 
So that's what we're going to sign today and try to at least avoid this administrative and, and you know, a little bit of a cost here as well. Right. So the essentially client. the financial institution here would be willing to pass that asset without seeing letters probate. Correct. That's just the ownership side. That does make sense to me, actually. In my opinion, that's the right outcome, just owing to the fact that she was never named as a beneficiary. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what about the tax side, Chris? Can you talk about that a little bit? That's where we wanted to to avoid that big you know, tax bill paid by uh, the estate, therefore the executor and the spouse. We were trying to get that into the RSP because she's got some RSPs for sure, but it's not the bulk of her retirement income. She's got good pension. It would have been a, a way better outcome for her to pay her taxes over the next few years or several years than uh, having this tax bill coming. So did you go to CRA to ask for a tax-free rollover here? Can you talk a little bit about the attempts you made on the tax side to get that rollover to happen? Actually, she, she came in with her accountant and he, he showed me a couple of documents in regards to the rollover to the spousal, uh, uh, to the RSP. Also, we had a lawyer's letter thereafter explaining the reasons why it would make sense to do the rollover directly. So there's two things we, we did in the last few months as well, trying to get that rollover going. And the other thing that I've, uh, and maybe you can help me with this situation, but the uh, RC4177 I read through, so the death of an RSP annuitant, uh, I was looking through that document and trying to find a way to get that rollover going and uh, looking at the qualifying survivor and, and all that kind of things. And I didn't find anything that would actually allow us to do a direct rollover and even as an exception if it it rolls into the estate and from the estate to uh, the spouse i didn't find anything where the cra would actually accept to do that right yeah i know that tfsa rules here to affect this rollover post-mortem off the top of my head i don't know the rsp rules but i'll include them in the notes i make to this episode i will include the full set of outcomes as far as creating that rollover on a postmortem basis. I know it's possible, but I think you might have run into a time frame limitation here and I will follow up on that appropriately. Yeah, the time frame limitation is actually right now. So this is, you know, the year after the deceased passed. You know, the difference between the RC4177 and the 4176, which is for RIFs, the 76, to my interpretation, does show that we would be able to make that exception between the estate and the spouse. So yes this for a RIF, no for an RSP. Yeah, that's my understanding. Okay, interesting. I'll have a look at that and confirm the source of the rules there. Of course, this is one of these painful situations where you get into a reading of the Income Tax Act. Yeah. What did the accountant say about this whole thing? It is my understanding as a financial planner, and he's an accountant, so he came in with pretty much you know, everything about the tax rules, and I knew most of what he was trying to do here for our client, and it made sense on the tax perspective. The problem is the law perspective wasn't maybe considered in how things were presented in regards to the rollover. Yeah, it's a difficult one because you have two different things, right? Like you said, there's the probate and ownership question. The tax question is a separate question. I do find people tend to get those confused, so it's good you're able to make that distinction. In this case, the language in the will was somewhat material. What did the will say about the RSP? Actually, I've got it right here in front of me, and there's one specific clause in the will that discussed the matter of 
a registered account and it does say that according to the Income Tax Act, the executor could change pretty much the beneficiary designation or so between beneficiaries of my estate, RSP in such matter and in such proportions as my trustee sees uh, fit and to bind all beneficiaries to such allocations. So this is where we actually started our conversation with Rupla and my estate department in regards to having this rollover directly to the spouse. Right. However, it doesn't make explicit reference to this RRSP, does it? No, it doesn't. Right. That's the sort of generic boilerplate language that I see in a lot of wills today where the lawyer wants to give the executor some power, but doesn't necessarily deal with the set of assets explicitly. Okay, I know some of you are pulling your hair out here, some of you that have dealt with this saying, I know this is possible and you're right. So here's what happened is following the interview, Chris emailed me and said, hey, great news. The financial institution has figured that they probably made a mistake in the original interpretation. And really, this is what happens when you have, I think in any case, a financial planner who pushes at the issue a little bit, says, I know what the rules are, and goes back and the institution ended up correcting it. So the end result here is that the rollover did happen. We ended up with basically a post-mortem election that created the rollover from the deceased annuitant to the surviving spouse. And in order to do that, it did require, which they had, the son who was originally named as beneficiary to renounce their position as beneficiary. Did you get a chance to talk to the lawyer who drafted that will? Uh, no, we had mostly uh, emails exchanges. Yeah. Okay. And was that between you and the lawyer or was that between your in-house legal team and the drafting lawyer? No, it was between me and the lawyer and the client. What was their sort of take on this? Did the lawyer feel like that should have given enough to make the spouse beneficiary or did the lawyer recognize that maybe there was a limitation there? It seems like uh, the lawyer's position is that uh, the rollover could have happened on an exception basis. But we did write a letter last week, so I'm just waiting to get on my side here and share it with the client about why we couldn't go this route. I mean, interesting. It's interesting that this thing is still developing. Just so people have an idea, we're recording this late in 2019, and this husband died in early 2019. When you emailed me about this case, you had a comment here. You said, the state documents shouldn't be prepared based just on a 30 to 45 minute conversation, that there should be a more robust conversation there. Can you talk a little bit about what led to that comment? Do you feel that that happened in this case or is that just your sort of general takeaway from this discussion? It is a general takeaway for me because I've seen a lot of situations where actually when I, I was in transition between uh, two institutions, I worked for a few months as a financial planning specialist and uh, I was doing plans all day and reading wills. And so we had conversations around the wills and maybe reviewing them with a lawyer. And what I, what I found is a lot of things were uh, extremely general. Uh, they didn't apply to the client uh, necessarily. And it feels like it might be because there's very few discovery conversation uh, with the client. So I'm trying still to find a strong team of professionals around me that I would, you know, get to know very well myself. I would go to the meetings as well. So this is what I'm looking for. You want to have three or four lawyers who do wills professionally where you can actually have a hand in making sure that the clients get good wills. Exactly. 
Because I would suggest in this case, we haven't talked about it yet, but you mentioned, or you mentioned it briefly, that in 2015, there was a guardianship order. The The wife, who's your client, ended up with guardianship over her husband, her now deceased husband. And there are sort of retirement age folks, uh, presumably in their 50s or 60s, when this is all happening. Yep. So the lawyer saw the husband in 2013, drafted a will. Was there no power of attorney done as part of that conversation? Exactly. That's one of the points I wanted to raise is uh, power of attorney doesn't seem to have been done. Uh, I don't even know if the personal directives was drafted. It should have, right? So this, this is one of the points I wanted to bring out is I would expect from a estate lawyer to have the conversation about those three documents for sure. I'm surprised to hear that the lawyer who did this work sent somebody away with only a will. I don't see that done much today. I find every lawyer I talk to that does wills and estates professionally essentially won't let you leave the office without all three documents. Exactly. Again, is that something you got to ask the lawyer about? Maybe it's not something that you wanted to bring up in this case, but was it something that showed up at all in your discussions with the lawyer? No, it was, you know, it was in the past and there's nothing we could change about this aspect. So that's why I didn't raise it up on the conversations. What about when you talk about building out your set of professionals that you would refer to with this lawyer be on that list? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. And um, actually, I started a new relationship with a, a lawyer and he's got background uh, with banks and with state and trust services. So corporate executorship and all that stuff. So I do think this is someone who's going to understand what my client's needs and how the conversation should go. How did you track that lawyer down? Actually, it was just recently at our bank and decided to start his own business. He had a background as a lawyer as well. Right. So he yeah. came in to do his business banking and ends up sitting across from you? Uh, no, actually, he was working for Estate and Trust with oh. us. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Got That's it. A, Strikes out on I his own. I think it's and... going to be, a, yeah, it's going to be a good partner, I would think. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's somebody who I've seen. I, I always like to see that person who's got that background in estate and trust services because typically they've seen the most difficult cases in a position like that. Oh, yes. Now, maybe for the benefit of folks listening, can you talk a little bit, I don't know how much you had to deal with this, but your client's role as a guardian versus what would have happened if she'd been an attorney? From my perspective, I've worked with two legal guardians so far since I've been here at this institution, and I've worked with many power of attorneys, and I don't see that there would have been any differences in terms of you know the name beneficiary in the past and, and everything that went after. Yeah, I agree with that, that under both, the traditional interpretation here is that those folks cannot change a testamentary instrument. There's some question as to whether RSP and insurance beneficiary designations actually fall into that category, but you said you talked to your legal team about that, and that's what I would do too in that case. I would defer to the judgment of my legal team, definitely under either arrangement, guardianship or power of attorney, you cannot make any changes to a will. Now, what about from the paperwork side? So you mentioned in your email to me again about having to go through the Office of the Public Trustee here in order to obtain guardianship in Alberta. It's Form 23. Would you see that as an onerous process or do you say, uh, whatever, if there's no POA, we can just go the Form 23 route? What's the verdict there? I don't have an opinion on that because I don't know how she went through the process and how difficult it might have been for her. And recently, just stuck with another client and we just transferred some assets again with legal guardian taking care of it for an adult child. 
And it was in place for like 10, 11 years. And I didn't have to go through the process from the, the get-go. From my perspective, I would suggest that once it's in place, it's no different. That adult Absolutely. guardianship order and the power of attorney are the same. My question was a little bit of a leading question there. And it is going to be in most cases, more challenging to go the uh, guardianship route. And if you look at the Form 23, which I'll include a link to in the show notes here, you can see that there's a fair bit of disclosure required. This all becomes public information. Talking to the estate lawyers, I know here in Edmonton, typically it's going to cost somewhere between about 1000 and $5,000 in court and legal fees to get the guardianship order processed versus having the power of attorney where really you just usually need the two medical professionals to sign off on it. So I think your instinct is right here to say, I'd prefer to see the power of attorney document in place versus leaving it to the adult guardianship order. I had a question in regards to that document. Actually, I see the form 23, but I also see the form 18. I was just wondering if you had any idea what the main difference might be in between the two. Form 18 and Form 23 are nearly identical. This is exactly why you need the estate lawyer who has experience with this kind of thing because they'll know which paperwork to use. But essentially, one is the initial application and the other is if the guardianship order has to be reviewed. But that's not the kind of thing that I would be comfortable delving into. This is exactly why you need to engage the qualified lawyer. Now, you talked in here, just in your comments to me again, a little bit about the discovery process and having an estate lawyer who goes through a good discovery process. And you even mentioned you might like to be in some of those meetings. And I'm wondering, maybe not specific to this case, but in general, what kinds of things do you think get overlooked in discovery or what could be done more thoroughly that might make situations like this a little bit easier to handle? There's a lot about the, actually only the family dynamic and the people involved or potentially involved in the estate planning. It seems like there's not a lot of conversation sometimes around the family dynamics. So this is a big one. And the other one I see a lot as well is uh, around residency of the executors. And for us at the banks, it, I know it can be an issue to deal with that. And, you know, having to post a bond and those extra costs and properties in the U.S. and all that kind of thing, maybe considering having different wills and different jurisdictions. So all those questions don't seem to come up all the time, even though the client would actually provide a list of assets and have those external assets mentioned. So, yeah, there's those two big things that I think have a huge impact on the family. Family dynamic is so challenging, and I would suggest that's where the financial planner is likely to have a better understanding. You'll have a longer-term relationship with the client. In that case, then, so let's say you had a client. Assume that you're going to deal with this lawyer who's just gone out on their own, this uh, person you know from your own in-house trust services, and now you have a client who you're sending to that lawyer to get their estate plan reviewed or to get a new will done. How much information would you share with that lawyer? What's that going to look like? An email, a phone call? If you could attend the meeting, what's your role sort of in attending the meeting? What do you see that looking like? I would do a pre-discovery myself with the client around that question before we go and see the lawyer. And I would love to sit down with them and make sure that all those points we raised are addressed. And then as far as sharing that with the lawyer, do you see that as your role or do you see it as that pre-discovery, you've kind of coached the client as to what they need to bring up with the lawyer. Where's the communication chain there? 
That's something I actually wrote down here for today's conversation is trying to get some external motivation or accountability. And if you just, you know, leave a few recommendations to the clients, let them go with that. Unfortunately, uh, most of them are not implemented. And when we talk about estate planning and those three important documents, it rarely happens that they're going to do it the next day. So what I want to do is call the lawyer while the client is my office and book that appointment. So I've tried that a couple of times already, and this is where I want to go with that question of estate planning 101, <laughs> and just make sure that this is addressed as soon as possible, because people just don't do it. If uh, you tell them, hey, those are the importance here, here are a few situations that happen, and how complex this can be, and how difficult it can be for the family, and still, they don't do it. And when you've done that, when you've had the client sitting across from you and you've made that phone call, do people follow up on that? Do they actually attend the meeting? Is that getting what you're looking for? Absolutely. And do you get some feedback then from them on what the discussion with the lawyer looks like? Or do you hear back from the lawyer afterwards? Getting there. Getting there because it's a kind of new process I'm trying. I really want my clients to apply those recommendations and I'm trying to find new ways to make this happen. And because you work in a bank environment, that tends to be the most tightly controlled from a compliance perspective. Is that a problem doing what's essentially a sole source referral? You hear a lot of times people say you have to give three referrals and let the client choose. Is that something you've talked with your compliance team about? No. And from what I'm seeing around me and what I've experimented myself in other institutions before, this is absolutely okay to refer to that person you trust. And I don't see the need to refer to two or three different lawyers. I want to refer to the lawyer who's going to have the best you know, expertise for whatever the clients need. I tend to agree with that. I hear that best practice three referrals thing sometimes, but I actually, I've never seen anything in writing about that. I've never seen a compliance team suggest that that's actually, that there's any rule that that adheres to. I don't believe there's anything in the FP Canada Standards of Professional Responsibility that supports that. I think when you talk about doing what's actually going to get the client to write a good will, that should be your priority there. So now... In your dealings with clients since then, I mean, this is a great example is actually sending them right to the lawyer right at the time of your meeting with them. Is there anything else you've changed based on this particular conversation in how you deal with your clients? I would go straight ahead to my manager with more complex issues and try to find the person who's got the decision power, right? And make sure that nobody's wasting anyone's time because it's been a long time, almost a year, and it's been quite complex for the client, for myself and a few people around me here. So I would go straight ahead with what are the possibilities and what are the chances it's actually going to work because we went two times back to the lawyer and trying to get more documents and more renunciations and all that stuff to make things happen. So I'm a little disappointed that we've done all that work and it's not necessarily giving the results expected or hoped. Yeah. And hopefully you still have a good resolution here. It's not a done deal yet, but I understand that disappointment. That's not clearly ideal. One other comment that I had actually around the will, now that you had this particular issue, what about a review of beneficiary designations? Would that be part of your ordinary estate planning discussions now? It is in, I would say, 90% of the time, meeting with clients and taking a look at the, the current designations should be 100 should be a hundred. <laughs> Seeing what happened right there and will be a hundred. Estate planning comes up every single time right now. 
just want to make sure nothing changed in your life. And if so, I just want to understand why you named that person and that you know the potential tax implications of that and that kind of thing. You know, just go for it. It takes five minutes to go through the accounts, look at beneficiaries and try to understand. In this particular case, do you have a sense of why the son was originally named as beneficiary on the RSP? Absolutely not. I didn't want to go there with my client necessarily, having a conversation about what happened in the past and how the relationship might have been and all that. I didn't want to go there necessarily, but um, it's it's a good question. And I absolutely don't understand why, because at that time, I would think the kid was actually minor. So it is even more of a uh, complex issue if it would have passed during that time. And not disabled, presumably? No, at all. Yeah, that is interesting. Certainly, if it was 2013, if you could get in the time machine and rewind back to 2013, that would have been a great time to ask that question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree today that probably asking that question, especially when the husband's not there to answer it, you know, there's only kind of bad blood by maybe asking that question. But it would have been interesting to be able to ask that question when the husband still had capacity. And I'm sure you would have learned a lot from the answer to that question anyways. Oh, yeah. And I would have loved to hear the conversation with the planner that actually put the name there, <laughs> just to understand what conversations there were around this, right? And you said that was done at a different institution, so. Correct. Now, you said you've been in the business for quite a long time. I'm curious to know, was there anything you picked up in your studies towards CFP certification that would have been material in this case? Before I did my CFP, this is not even the kind of conversation I was having that much with clients. Yes, we were talking about the name beneficiaries, but I was not going very deep in the conversations around estate planning. So it is a huge difference, actually, because this is something I'm having on a regular basis now. This is the kind of conversation I'm having every day. And when I was a financial advisor and before doing my CFP, I didn't go too deep with that kind of conversation. And lots of time, it's actually time-related, right? You've got only you know an hour or so to meet with the client. Now, I sometimes I do take two hours and a half with the client. I hear that a lot, actually, where people say, you know, I tend to have much lengthier discussions with clients. There's a sort of trade-off there, right? That lengthy discussion means you're seeing less clients, but hopefully it means deeper relationships with the clients you do have. Exactly, yeah. Do you find people respond well to that estate discussion? Is it kind of a painful thing or are people grateful to be asked those questions? 50-50. So uh, there's still quite a bit of people who are not comfortable with it. You know, they tend to look at each other when I have couples in front of me and you can feel there's some sort of discomfort. And sometimes it comes from the fact that one wants to take care of that right away and the other one is just procrastinating, you know. It's two different people, right? So you're always going to get some sort of dynamic that shows up there. Very rare to have a discussion like that where you'd have complete concordance. Oh, yeah. Any last minute items you want to share about this, Chris? Anything else you think people should be aware of or lessons you have learned that other financial planners and financial advisors would benefit from? Just coming back on a few points we discussed is really talking about that as early as possible. Anytime there's any change in their lives, you got to bring that back for sure. Uh, I think the external commitment is huge. They won't do it if they're not somehow, you know, pushed to do it. So you got to be there for them and you got to make sure that the um, recommendations are going to be implemented. So this one's a big one, I think. Well, I really appreciate that, Chris. That's a good case to work through. I think it's nice to work through a case where 
the outcome is still undetermined and where it might not work out as we want it to, I think it's important to recognize that you can't win all of these, but it does sound like you're taking really good care of your client here and fighting for the best possible outcome, recognizing that we don't know where it's going to go. Thanks very much, Chris. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Jason. You as well. Okay, that was quite robust. Lots there from Chris. The first thing I want to comment on here is I think this is a valuable exercise. Just this idea where Chris says, you know, I do have some specific lessons that I can learn from this. And you'll notice that he, a couple of times in the interview, and I really like this degree of self-assessment or honesty, where he says, you know, 90% of the time I talk about beneficiary designations, it should be 100%. And I think that just taking that step where you say, yeah, I probably do it most of the time, but not all of the time. That's a fairly important step to take that the financial planner is recognizing where there might be things they can improve on. And I've previously cited this statistic, but one of the interesting things here is that while you might feel that you've discussed something with a client, the client may not agree. So the statistic that I have seen here is from an American study, and it dealt with charitable contributions or charitable giving in the context of a financial plan or an estate plan. And in this study, we had 100% of financial planners who identified in a client meeting that they had explicitly asked about making charitable donations. The same clients, when asked, 17% of them indicated that they had been asked about charitable contributions. I'm not that concerned about, well, I, I mean, I'd love when people do good works for charity. That's not really the point here. The point is that that's about one in six who actually received that message, even though the financial planners all felt like the message had been sent. So if we're talking about getting that beneficiary designation, discussion in 100% of the time, well, if we assume that there's the same ratio of success as with the charitable contributions conversation, if you see the client once a year and you ask them in each meeting about their beneficiary designations, after you've seen them six times, that's when they're likely to remember that. And there's even an advertising rule about that, right? Those that know their advertising rules of thumb, the advertising rule of thumb is you have to have somebody here or see a message six times in order to remember it. So maybe there's some validity there, or maybe my statistics are just awful. Then we have this question about the actual beneficiary designation here. And this is a problem when we don't have somebody who has capacity, but is engaged in a testamentary discussion like this. Under a legal guardianship or a power of attorney, it's probably not possible to change a beneficiary designation on a registered account. Although in some provinces you can. Don't assume that you cannot do this. In some provinces, you actually could potentially, under a legal guardianship or a power of attorney, potentially change a beneficiary designation on a registered account. But for the most part, no. So this is a question you would want to take to your compliance team if it ever confronted you. And that would be the same if you ever have the question about changing a beneficiary designation on a life insurance policy. Now, that means in this particular case, we're really stuck 
with the son as beneficiary. And Chris and I talked about this a little bit. Why is the son the beneficiary? There must have been a reason for it, but it doesn't seem like the reason was clear. It doesn't seem like the couple had any sort of marital challenges. I don't know if the financial institution that originally changed that beneficiary designation warned their client of the full consequences. I did want to take a moment to talk about the difference here between respecting a client objective and challenging the client's objective. Certainly, if a client who has legal capacity sits down across from you and says, I want to change the beneficiary designation on my account to my son or my daughter, whatever it happens to be, you have to respect that person's wishes. However, you can't just do this blindly. It would not be appropriate to do so. First off, we want to make sure that the client does have capacity and that they're not operating under some undue influence or anything like that. We talked about this back in episode one of season two when Dawn was good enough to join us and we talked about capacity concerns there. Certainly, Ellen Bessner, the author of Advisor at Risk, warns us, and I don't want to misquote her here, so you can confirm this in her own writing, but she says that if you take directions from a client who lacks capacity, that's a source of liability for the advisor. But even then, let's say the client has capacity, they understand the consequences of their actions, you still want to explain to that person, you say, look, by naming your son as beneficiary, there's no rollover available here, unless, of course, and I asked about this in the interview, unless, of course, that child has a disability. But absent any disability or dependency as an adult, where you still get the rollover, you don't actually have to have a disability to get that. However, dependency as an adult is an exceptionally difficult test to meet. So by naming the son as beneficiary, you do lose a significant tax planning advantage. That's that ability to roll that RRSP or RIF over to the spouse. Now we saw that we were able to correct that. So that's good, but sure an awful lot of work here and probably some stress and effort that the client may not have been too excited about. When we're looking at beneficiaries, it's important to have a robust review. So Chris said, look, I want to talk about beneficiary designations in all cases. Well, we should be here looking at beneficiary designations on any individually owned life insurance policies, on any corporately owned life insurance policies. And if you have somebody who has been a business owner or some other situation where they might have borrowed money, you also might want to ask about collateral assignments. Has there ever been a collateral assignment or is there now a collateral assignment for any of the insurance that we have in force? We would also want to look at group insurance. Is there a group insurance policy where there might be a beneficiary? And you're likely to think about this for somebody who's at working age but this is also something we should be asking with retirees. A lot of retirees, especially those on a defined benefit pension, will have a life insurance policy that carries with them through retirement, probably a pretty small permanent insurance policy, but that's still fairly common. On that note, we should be reviewing beneficiary designations on the pension. Now, you as the financial planner probably can't see what you need to see to review this. This is where you want to get the client to go to their human resources department and chat about who their beneficiary is. 
We would also want to make sure this is done for any RRSP or RIF or LIF or Lira accounts, TFSA. And with the TFSA, of course, if there's a spouse or common law partner, we probably want that person named as the successor owner or successor annuitant. That's what gives us that best possible tax outcome. We have to make sure that any non-registered insurance investments, such as a segregated fund, also have a beneficiary designation made. It's also worth thinking about some of the products we might see, especially with grandparents, sometimes with parents. If you have a life insurance policy on the life of a grandchild, has the grandparent's estate contemplated what happens when that person dies? Is there a successor owner named on the policy or is it going to be dealt with via that person's will? We have a similar concern with RESPs. What happens when the subscriber of an RESP dies? Is there a joint subscriber or is there some sort of successor ownership available? Or is it going to pass through the will and have to be dealt with there via probably a probate process then? And RDSPs shouldn't be an issue. With RDSPs, generally speaking, the beneficiary is also the owner and there's no subscriber relationship. But you do have a small number of RDSPs where you do have a parent who is a trustee on the plan. And that's where you might have to consider who is going to take over as that trustee if something happens to that parent. That is definitely something to concern yourself with if you have an RDSP on a minor child who can't yet be the owner of their plan. The number for today's episode is four. The number for today's episode is four. Now, something else Chris talked about here that I quite liked, and you heard me talk about this. I am a big fan of this arrangement. I know not everybody can do it. I really like when we have a client in our office who does not have a will or a power of attorney or a personal directive, should have all three, as we discussed in there. I'm really shocked that this person had an estate plan that didn't include a power of attorney and a personal directive. Anyways, when we have the client sitting across from us, I know that the sort of traditional thing to do has been to just say, hey, look, here are three estate lawyers. I know all of these people. Give one of them a call or give two of them a call or give all three of them a call. Go interview them and see who you like dealing with and get one of them to write a will. Now, I would be interested to know how often that actually happens, how many of the clients that people give three cards to or send three emails to or whatever how many of those actually turn into will, a power of attorney, and a personal directive? I really prefer, and again, I know not everybody can do this, but I prefer what Christian is talking about here where he says, you know, right there in my office, the client's there. I know they need a will. I don't want the will overlooked. I know what the chances are of that person getting a will if they're left to their own devices. Why don't we just pick up the phone right then and there or send an email right then and there and book the appointment, get that person locked in, committed to go and sit down with that lawyer. Now, some of you will say, well, then I have liability because that person, if they go to the lawyer, it's a sole source referral, and I'm going to be on the hook for that. I don't know, and we talked about this once before in this podcast, I don't know 
where that comes from. I'm not sure what the source of that three referral avoidance of liability topic is. I guess it must be out there somewhere. I know that some other professions have it, but if we look at what the Financial Planning Canada Standards of Professional Responsibility tells us, all it tells us here, there's Rule 25 and Rule 26, and I'll include the link to these in the show notes here, but Rule 26 reads, where a certificate refers a client to a third party, the certificate has an obligation to take reasonable steps to ensure the third party to whom the client is referred has the appropriate qualifications to provide the services for which the referral is made. In this example, Christian has spoken with the lawyer to whom he is sending clients. He knows that lawyer does a whole bunch of wills work. Chris himself has dealt with quite a few wills, so he would be at least presumably able to judge what's a good will and what's not. It certainly sounds here like he was willing to judge the will that landed us where we are wasn't so effective. That's it. So at least under the standards of professional responsibility, which I would suggest might be, and I'm no lawyer, but I would suggest these might be a reasonable source of sort of defense if you found yourself in court that this should be okay. The other relevant rule is rule 25. And I think this is exactly what Chris talks about here. Several times in this interview, he talks about going and getting outside help. He said one of the lessons he's learned here is to go to his manager earlier on these more complex cases. And that's where we see under Rule 25, a certificate shall offer advice only in those areas in which the certificate is competent. In areas where the certificate is not sufficiently competent, the certificate shall seek the counsel of qualified individuals and or refer clients to such parties beautiful. I would suggest that the way Chris presented himself in this interview is right in line with that Rule 25. Again, I don't see any obligation there to use three sources of referral or whatever the case is. Now, if your compliance department tells you that's how to do it, then fine. That's how you do it, right? I don't want to argue with your compliance department. Certainly not my intention here. Another area that Chris mentioned as problematic here. And this ties back to why name the son as beneficiary is that family dynamic. Again, we don't know why the son was named as beneficiary, and I don't want to get into the possibilities here. But this is something that the financial planner should be pretty good at. The financial planner should be able to have this conversation with the client and really be able to explore what family dynamics are at work. Why might the son have been the appropriate beneficiary? Was there some intention to leave that person some amount of money? Is there a different way that could have been done? If we'd had a conversation with both spouses in the room, might they have agreed on some handling? Might they have written wills where each of them left everything to each other, but then they made sure that there was something in there for that child? Whatever that family dynamic is, I would suggest once the financial planner gets to the bottom of it, it's important that the clients recognize that that's something that probably has to be shared with their other advisors. It probably shared with their estate lawyer, maybe with their accountant, if they have an accountant or other tax professional that they work with. It won't be so obvious to the client that they have this interesting family dynamic. Nobody really thinks about that interesting family dynamic until they sit down and talk with somebody else about it. For a scenario like this, it would be good if you had somebody like Chris who was involved early and was able to get to the bottom of that family dynamic and then make sure that the client is able to communicate that 
with their other advisors. The client may very well say, okay, I get that we can talk about this with our advisor, but can you just tell our estate lawyer, the wills guy you sent us to, can you just tell him or her about it? And that might be fine too if we get the client's consent. We can certainly call that person up and say, I've got this interesting case and here's what's going on with the family. Without that consent, it would certainly not be appropriate to sort of out the client as having whatever this interesting family dynamic is. We also had the question come up in this discussion about probate. Now, Chris and I are both in Alberta and probate is a relative non-event as far as the direct costs go. It's just a few hundred dollars is the maximum cost of probate in Alberta. There's no percentage like in many other jurisdictions. So the direct cost is relatively negligible. However, if we took this RSP or RIF and we ended up probating it, it's not so much the cost here, it's that it slows everything down. Now, if you do have a lawyer involved, who is billing on assets, you might find some lawyers who will bill based on that RSP or RIF passing through a probated estate. But that's the kind of thing that you might want to confirm with that lawyer before you engage that person to do the probate work on the will. I find some lawyers will bill that, but I know lots who say, no, no, that's a crazy thing to bill for. It doesn't actually increase my workload at all to watch that RSP or RIF pass through the estate. Now, Chris mentioned that because of the dollar amount, that's where probate was required. And I think this is something that those who have never worked in a bank may not appreciate. Bank managers will allow a certain amount, not very much usually. It might be a few thousand dollars, maybe in the low tens of thousands of dollars. The bank manager, if they know everybody, so you know this is the parent, you know this is the child, might be fifteen or twenty thousand dollars that the bank manager would have discretion to let pass without probate. Really, the reason that we want that probate is to reduce liability. So if we are sure that there's not going to be a huge source of liability here, you know, what's the chances of somebody suing somebody else over twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars? What's the chances that where it goes from the parent that you know to the child that you know that there's any sort of lawsuit? So that's where we don't necessarily have to probate every asset, at least in Alberta. Ontario is a little bit different. Ontario has gotten quite aggressive with its probate. And you'll want to know for your province just how aggressive the probate rules would be, recognizing that there is quite a bit of provincial variation there. Okay, I'm going to add a little section here at the end of these podcasts. I know some people are avid podcast listeners, and I know others are on the hunt for more. I had a good discussion with a student the other day about the range of podcasts that's out there. I want to take a minute to recommend one podcast in particular. There's not a ton of episodes, about 23 or 24 episodes. The podcast is called Kitsis and Carl although sometimes it could be better called Carl and Kitsis. The two hosts of this are Michael Kitsis. He's the nerd's eye view guy. He does a whole bunch of writing about the state of financial planning. Uh, he's an American commentator, but he does tons of great stuff, really solid stuff for both the American and Canadian markets. And he sort of interviews Carl Richards, 
who is a client communications specialist, former financial advisor himself, might still do some financial advising, it's hard to tell. Carl is famous for his napkin diagrams. I don't know if anybody has seen these or not, but if you ever go to the uh, CFP board offices in the United States, which is sort of the equivalent of FP Canada here, they have these napkins that have these financial planning pictures on them. They're printed and they're all drawn with a Sharpie. Uh, anyways, Carl is the Sharpie guy. But what he's really better known for is he just has a whole bunch of really great client communication tools and techniques. And the nice thing with the podcast is that Michael will sort of present him with a client problem, and then he talks through, Carl talks through some of their client communication tools. They really are both very good communicators. They have lots of good tools they bring to bear. I would suggest you go track down the Kitsis and Carl podcast. I find myself in class constantly referring back to things I heard on this podcast, and probably my favorite saying here, and I think this is something that a lot of us could benefit from, try this one on for size, I really like it, is, okay, client, I, I know you want to do this thing that you're talking about doing. Well, client, you might fire me if I tell you what I'm about to tell you, but you should definitely fire me if I don't tell you this. That's a Carl Richards one, and I, I really like it. I think it's you should trademark that. I should pay him a royalty for saying it, whatever. It's so good. So yeah, that's a podcast I would strongly urge you to subscribe to. There's also a YouTube version of it. Episodes run about 25 minutes, which is a nice short length. I know mine's an hour. I get that, but that's the whole CE credit thing. And I'll be uh, coming back with more of those. And I also wanted to give props to somebody who or give an acknowledgement to somebody didn't leave us an iTunes review. I'm always looking for iTunes reviews, but a student in a class I was in the other day mentioned that she's really enjoying the podcast, and Joanne specifically said that she really likes the music. So thanks, Joe, for putting the music together. Nice to hear that, Joanne. Thanks so much. And if you do enjoy, please do roll on over to iTunes and leave us a review. The reviews help us to get discovered. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. Okay, lots of good estate planning topics in that discussion. I really enjoyed that. I really like to learn and I like to hear other people learn. And I think you'll hear in the interview that Chris and I both did a fair bit of learning. I found that a valuable exercise. I hope that you're able to join us again in two weeks. We'll hear from Tab and somebody else. I still have to record the next interview. We're going to do some retirement and pensions work. I look forward to that one as well. A little bit of technical stuff around pensions there. Thank you very much and enjoy your continued studies. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. 
Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.